Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. All right, so as I mentioned before, we're in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, most of that chapter, uh, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the message to see what God has for us this evening. All right, Matthew chapter 2. I'm reading from the uh, Christian Standard Bible. Verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. And then down in verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you've given us. Your word is truth. Would you come now and set us apart, sanctify us, make us more like Jesus because of these words of truth and through these words of truth? Lord, would you write these words and the truth that they convey to us on our hearts? that we might know you, that we might enjoy you the way that these wise men in the story enjoyed you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm just curious, are there any of you that are here tonight that just really, really love Christmas, really love this time of year? Don't be shy. few of you? Excellent. Um, Now, this is a harder question, maybe not. Uh, any of you just really despise this time of year? You just can't wait for it to be done? Nobody's going to admit that openly. Um, that's okay. Um, maybe, I mean, because maybe it's just that you're just so ready for hot cross buns to come out on the shelves, which is like T minus three days, I think. Um, yeah, in, out there in the world, there are people who love this time of year. There are people who either really dislike this time of year or maybe you know, maybe this year in particular, this time is, is difficult for you or for them because of a significant loss or grief 
that's happened over the course of the year. Um, a lot of people are just indifferent. You know, they see this time of year just like any other day. It's, you know, except, you know, there's a, to get some time off work, eat, the food is slightly better, but other than that, it's not, you know, not that exciting. Um, which is interesting because that really parallels the way that people look at Jesus in the world. There are people who love him, who love Jesus, who enjoy him. There are people who hate him and, and, and hate anything connected to him. And then there are a whole bunch of people in the middle who are indifferent. Uh, it, it, he just doesn't seem, Jesus is, uh, if he's true, if he was real, then it doesn't seem that connected to my daily life. I've, you know, I've got my stuff to do, I've got my job, I've got my family. Jesus is interesting, but not really that important. What is it that makes this particular season of the year, Christmas, Advent, um, significant for us as Christians? Not just us as Australians or people in a place that celebrates Christmas, but what is it that makes it significant for us as, as Christians? How does God use this time of year to make us more like Jesus, the Jesus who was born 2,000 years ago? Uh, we've talked about this in our series that we've been going through in the book of Acts that we've called Unstoppable, how God uses the church to change the world. And, and what, if you've heard some of the messages and you've read the book of Acts, you understand it's, it's never the church by itself. It's never the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul by themselves that changed the world. It's always the apostles and the church filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit that change the world. And, and the same thing is true at Christmas time. We think, what is the X factor of Christmas? What is it that makes Christmas a fruitful season for Christians? It's the Holy Spirit. To the degree that the Holy Spirit uses this time of year to help us worship, enjoy Jesus, then it's a fruitful season. To the degree in which this time of year distracts us from worshiping and enjoying Jesus, then it's not a fruitful season. Some of us struggle this time of year because it's like there's this, this, this guilt that we experience that we, we have to be happy. You know, I've, you know we, the, all the music at this time of year is really, really happy and upbeat, and we feel like, you know, we may not feel that way. Um, especially where I, I grew up in the Northern Hemisphere, this time of year, in fact, it was the day before yesterday, is the shortest, the darkest night of the year. And for many people, that causes, there are physical responses, physical repercussions of that. People feel depressed. They feel it's hard to get out of the house if it's cold or, you know, unfortunate weather outside. And yet we're supposed to be happy. And it's a struggle for many people. I, I like the fact that, and we've commented on this before, that just out there, just, just behind that wall back there, that the council has put up those big, chunky letters. You know, you've got peace and, and you've got joy. And it shows us that even out in the world, people that don't know Jesus or don't, are indifferent to him still are really interested and captivated by the ideas of peace and joy. I don't know anybody who doesn't want to have peace or who doesn't want to have joy. And yet, unlike, you know, things that you can buy and sell, 
You know, those, you know, Santa hats or something like that. You, you, peace and joy are hard to find, and they're even harder to keep. How is it that at this time of year we can f- both find joy and hold on to it, that we can both find peace and hold on to it? And I think there are some clues that it will help us answer that question in the passage that we just read, because joy in particular, is a feature. It's not just a decoration. It's not just something that we have for a minute until I get out my phone and check my credit card statement and then it goes away. Joy is something that is, it's it's not connected to my circumstances. It's not connected to circumstances at all. It's connected to the reality of Jesus coming into the world. And so we're going to look at that tonight. You'll notice this in verse 10, and we'll come back to this a couple of times. Here's what it says of the wise men. It says, when they saw the star, and they they realized that it came to rest over the place where Jesus was, so when they saw the star and realized that they were there, they had arrived at their destination, verse 10, they were overwhelmed with what? With joy. And so that's that's where we're going tonight. But see, before we, the reason I included uh, the sections of chapter 2 that I did in the reading is because by the, at the, that end bit that I read, we have the, the section where Herod, the king, was so angry that he had been tricked uh, or outwitted, it says, by the wise men that he goes to Bethlehem, the place where Jesus had been born and lived the first couple of years of his infant life, and that he was so furious about this potential rival to the throne that he goes on a bloody massacre and, and kills probably a dozen or so babies. And, and the, it, the, the passage ends with the mothers of these babies who had just been violently and unjustly killed, weeping and refusing to be consoled. And so we have to ask the question, where is joy for them? Be, be, because if Jesus doesn't bring joy for a bereaved mom, then he can't really bring sustainable joy for any of us. And so we need to look at that tonight. And we're going to look in this passage and we're going to find, I think, I'm going to point to three clues, three clues to who Jesus is and why, where the joy comes from. And then I'm going to point to three ways we might respond to him. So three clues as to who Jesus is and then three ways we might respond to him. Let me give you just a little bit of, of background, because this is, Matt, this is from the gospel according to Matthew. Many of us are more familiar with the, uh, the, the Christmas story, the Advent, the birth story from the gospel according to Luke. And if you're familiar with Luke and you're not as familiar with Matthew, that's okay. Um, a lot of the details that we think about at Christmas time, the shepherds and the angels and and Mary and, and the manger, all of that is found in Luke's account. None of those details are found in Matthew's account. And I think there's a, a reason for the differences between the two. Uh, oftentimes, Matthew's account of Jesus' life and Luke's account are very similar, sometimes even word for word similar. But here at the birth story, they're completely different. So we need to ask why. I think the reason, and I'm, I've you know, done a little bit of research on this as well, is that Matthew and Luke are writing to two different audiences. They're writing for different purposes. 
So Luke was the only writer of the New Testament who was not Jewish. He's a Gentile. He's writing for a predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish audience. And one of his key themes that comes out in the book of Luke is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for everybody, for Jews and Gentiles, for men and women, for the rich and the poor, for the connected and the outcast. And so you see in his account of Jesus' birth, who are the, some of the main characters? They are, you know, Mary and Elizabeth, women. You, you see uh, Mary, who is also poor. Uh, you see the shepherds, who are poor and outcast in many ways in society. And, and so you, you, you see Luke's purpose in writing coming through in the details that he chooses to include, as well as those he doesn't include. Matthew, on the other hand, whose account we've read, is Jewish. He was one of Jesus, the original 12 uh, disciples, and he is, his purpose in writing, to a, again, to a predominantly Jewish audience, is to show them that Jesus, this baby that was born in Bethlehem on a particular day in history, that he is the one who was promised hundreds, thousands of years ago. He is the one that everyone was waiting for who would come and rescue God's people who were oppressed. He was going to deliver them. He was going to save them. He is the Messiah, the chosen one. And so you'll see in Matthew's version, he alludes to or he quotes from the Old Testament over and over again to show that Jesus is the one. One of the background passages from the Old Testament that is right there in the background of chapter 2 is in one of the Psalms, Psalm 72. Psalm 72 was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. It was, he was written, that psalm was written by King Solomon. And King Solomon wrote this song about all the kings who would come after him. So, you know, his son who would sit on David's throne and his grandson who would sit on David's throne and his grandson's grandson's grandson that would sit on David's throne. This was a, you know, it was a prophecy about them and, and a blessing for them. And this is what he says. This is what Solomon says in Psalm 72, verse 10. He says, May the kings of Tarshish and the coasts and islands bring tribute. Now, Tarshish, that may not mean anything to you, but that's, that place is not in Israel. It's, it's a far away, it's a foreign place. And so he's looking out to these foreign countries and these foreign uh, rulers. He says, The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts Let all kings bow in homage to him, and all nations serve him. So Solomon's looking beyond the borders of Israel to all these foreign lands and seeing this vision of kings and officials and dignitaries coming from all those places, the four corners of the earth, coming to Jerusalem to worship the king on David's throne. That is there in the background of Matthew chapter 2, because we see Wise men coming from where? They're coming from foreign nations to Jerusalem or Bethlehem, which is just outside Jerusalem. And what do they do? They bow before the king and they worship in fulfillment of this prophecy. So who were these wise men and where did they come from? Matthew does not tell us. He just says they came from the east. 
not very specific. So, what about wise men? What, like, you know, what role did they play, and, and, and have they shown up in the Bible uh, before? And the answer is, yes, they have. Um, you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And if, you know, if you're familiar at all with the story of Joseph, um, the story of Joseph, he was, if you remember the story, sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ended up as a slave in Egypt. And through a series of, you know, difficult, unfortunate things that happened to him there, he ends up in Pharaoh's jail. He ends up in Pharaoh's jail. And while he's in the jail, there's a couple of guys with him in the cell, and, uh, one, and both of those guys, are, they had formerly worked for the Pharaoh. They were Pharaoh's employees. And for whatever reason, they had offended the Pharaoh, and they found themselves in jail. Both of these men, while Joseph was there in the cell with them, had dreams. Uh, the dream, uh, Joseph then is given the interpretation of those dreams by God, and he tells them what their dreams meant. Both dreams come to pass exactly as Joseph said they would. Fast forward a few years, and Pharaoh himself has a dream, and he's terrified. It's like he wakes up in the middle of the night sweating. He wants to run to his mom, but she's too far away. So he's like, I don't know what to do with this dream. And so he, he, he calls for some people to help him out. He calls for his wise men, the people who worked for him, who would be able to interpret dreams. How did they do it? Well, maybe sometimes they looked, consulted the stars or, you know, consulted, you know, they would take a, a dead animal and take out its organs and kind of, you know, look at it and think, see if there's any patterns they could see. And, and, and maybe they could predict the future, interpret dreams. That's what wise men did in those days. Um, and, but the thing is, with this dream of Pharaoh's, they couldn't do it. They couldn't interpret the dream. They have no idea. But they're like, hang on. There's this Jewish boy that's in in your prison. I seem to think that he was able to interpret dreams. Maybe you should go ask him. And so they call Joseph. And Joseph, you know, he says, Pharaoh says, Joseph, can you interpret this dream? And Joseph says, no, I can't do that that for you, Pharaoh, but I, I serve and worship a God who can. And so he prays to God. And he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. The dream comes to pass. And Joseph is then made the chief, most powerful wise man in all of Egypt. About a thousand years, 500 years later, a very similar thing happens in the history of the people of Israel, of God's people. This time, God's people are taken to another kingdom, not to Egypt, but they're in exile in Babylon. And in Babylon, there's another powerful king, not the Pharaoh, but King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar one night has a really scary dream, and his mom's not around either, and so he calls for his wise men, and his wise men come, and they say, you know, he says, okay, wise men, I've had a dream, I want you to interpret it. And the wise men say, Nebuchadnezzar, tell us the dream. And he goes, you know what, if you guys are so wise, how about you tell me what I dreamed? And then I'll tell you, and if you don't get it right, I'm going to chop off your heads. And so these wise men are a little bit nervous, and they're thinking, I don't think we can do that. So they think, oh, I've got a great plan. I think there's this, this Jewish dude that he's, maybe he's good at, you know, interpreting dreams, and if he gets it wrong, then it's his head and not ours. So they get this guy, a guy by the name of Daniel, and they say, okay, Daniel, 
can you go to King Nebuchadnezzar and tell him what he dreamed and what it means? And Daniel says, I can't do that, but I know a God who can. And he prays to God, and God gives him the vision of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. It comes to pass, and then Daniel is made the chief wise man in the kingdom of Babylon. What does all this have to do with Matthew chapter 2? Well, see, in Matthew chapter 2, we have the, situ- the tables are turned. Because in previous history, you had God's people being thrown out of the land into foreign nations, and then God showing them through a series of circumstances that wisdom comes from above through his people. Now you have wise men, supposed wise men from these foreign nations coming to Jerusalem searching for the wisdom that they know comes from above. That's who these men are. And who do they come seeking? Not Daniel, not Joseph, but the source of wisdom itself, Jesus, the baby who was born king of the Jews, a king worthy of worship. Now, these men, they, go, they first go, they don't know exactly where he is, they see a star, They end up in Herod's palace because they think, well, he's got to know. If somebody's born the king, the current ruler should know about this. He obviously does not, and he's very upset when he hears the news. But they don't listen to Herod. They just keep following the star. The star eventually leads him, leads the wise men to Jesus, and you see them worshiping, bowing before him, and taking all of these gifts like gold and and frankincense and myrrh. Now, these are gifts that only the top 1% of people would even afford, could even afford to buy, much less give away as gifts. So these, these men are very wealthy men, but they're still, they're doing something incredibly lavish. The only, peop, the only kind of person that you would give gifts like this to is a king. And that's, and that's what these gifts signify. The beginning of verse 2 you see, they come looking for the king, of Jew, the king of the Jews. By verse 11, these men are bowing in front of a baby, maybe two years old at the time, and they're worshiping him. So you see how the king of the Jews has become the king of all nations, just as King Solomon had said would happen. That's clue number one. Who is he? He's the king of every nation. Clue number two. See, because not only is this King Jesus attracting a worshiping audience from far away, he is exerting a gravitational pull on an object that's even farther away. Out there in the galaxy, there's a star that is now being affected by the coming of Jesus. it's, It's unusual enough that these wise men, whose job it was to observe and interpret the meanings of the stars, they notice, but the average ordinary person doesn't notice. It's just to them, it looked like another star. And today, there are people who debate, was it a comet? Was it a supernova? We don't really know what it was, what sort of phenomenon it was, but whatever it was, it was enough to get the attention of these wise men, enough that it led them to the place where Jesus was. Matthew's gospel is, is actually full of examples of Jesus having this kind of effect 
on the created world. Here, it's a star. Later on in Matthew chapter 8, there's that scene where Jesus is asleep in a boat and his disciples are freaking out because there's this massive storm that's happening and they wake Jesus up. Man, save us. This storm is going to kill us. And Jesus just opens his mouth and the storm stops. Fast forward to chapter 26. Jesus is dying on the cross. His very last breath he breathes. And Matthew records for us this detail, and it's only found in Matthew. He says, the moment he breathed his last breath, the earth shook. And it shook so violently that tombs that were hewn into rock split open and dead people came out. It's in there. It's a bit of a head-scratcher, but it is in there. The point of Matthew to include these details is that when the king of creation comes on the scene, creation stands up and takes notice. And that's why we see the star leading these men to Jesus. You see, Paul tells us this. There's a day that's coming because this is about Jesus coming into the world the first time. He says there's a day coming when he comes again. And at that point, and we find this in Romans chapter 8, all of creation, the oceans, the trees, the animals, are going to sing to welcome him because they are eagerly waiting. They are so keen for Jesus to come back again and for every single one of his people, his church, to be revealed and united, gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping. They can't. Wait. When the king of creation comes, creation takes notice. That's the second clue we find here is that Jesus is not only the king of all nations, but he's the king of creation. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. The heavenly bodies, billions upon billions of stars and planets. Isaiah chapter 40 says, he knows them all by name. Not one of them goes missing. I mean, if you know anything about how many stars there are in the the universe, that is an incredible truth to wrap your mind around. And this baby that the wise men are worshiping He's the one who made every single one. He's the one who knows their names. He's the king of creation. Clue number three, this one is in the text, but it's hardest to spot. And we find it at the very end of the section. After the wise men meet Jesus, they have a dream warning them. They said, don't go back to Herod. It's, it's an amazing detail. You know, God uses these wise men who are pagans. They're not Worshippers of God. They're not Jews. They'd be considered pagans. But he uses them. He sends them a dream. And that dream actually is what preserves the life of his own son. It's what preserves the life of Jesus. Causes his mom and dad to flee to Egypt as refugees because of Herod's rage. And as soon as they get out of of the country... Herod, he realizes he's been tricked, and as I said before, he, in there in verse 16, he flew into a rage. And this rage, it was so epic that he, he, his rage is only satisfied by this slaughter of 
innocent babies. And you might think in, in looking at that scene, and there's, you know, it's been depicted in artwork, and you might think, man, this, the darkness has won. Here you have this picture of these grieving mothers, and as tragic and horrific as that picture is, we know by the end of the story that Herod failed. He didn't snuff out the light. Why? Because in verse 19, first three words of verse 19 in chapter 2, after Herod died, after Herod died, the angel of the Lord comes and tells Joseph it's safe to go back home. See, that's good news. It was good news here when Jesus came the first time. Herod is dead. Jesus is alive. When he comes again, this is going to happen. And if you are one of his people, if you are a follower of Jesus, if he has saved you, then you will live to see this day. You will see this with your own eyes. I will see this. And, man, I'm so ready to hear the announcement That Satan, sin, evil, dead, gone forever. Jesus, alive forever. And this is a preview of that. See, there's another, you know, some people have um, questioned whether this historical event, this massacre of the babies actually happened because only Matthew records it. It's not found anywhere outside the Bible. But we do know enough about Herod, King Herod, from history to know that this is entirely consistent with his character. King Herod um, was notorious. He he had one of his own wives killed out of jealousy. He had one of his own brother-in-laws killed. He killed three of his own sons. Caesar Augustus is reported to have said that it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. He was a brutal man. He, he suffered, they think, most of his life from a very severe form of depression that made him wildly paranoid. And, and so you can understand why when the wise men show up and say, you know, the king, the, the, where is this king of the Jews? Herod um, is, is, is freaking out. He's like, well, I am the king. And, and what's interesting is we also know from history that Herod himself uh, was not fully a Jewish. He, he was actually a foreigner. But he was made king. He was made king by the Romans. And so the king of the Jews, an actual descendant of David, whoa, that's that's not good news for him. And so he flies into this rage. And yet there's another reason, maybe even stronger reason, that this is so believable and horrific at the same time. If this baby that the wise men come to worship is in fact the king of the nations, if he is the king of creation, then he will be the king who will rule the world in perfect righteousness and justice. He is going to be the light that shines on all of the sin and corruption and selfishness in my heart and in yours. And if you're like me, to think about that, sometimes it can be a bit of a scary thought. Certainly without Jesus, 
who we know has saved us from sin. It's a scary thought. And we think, man, I don't want my sin to be exposed. I just want God to leave me alone. The writer of Psalm 2 understood this. He said these words. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire against, together against the Lord and his anointed one. And it's a rhetorical question. The anointed one clearly is the Messiah, the coming Christ. And according to this psalm, when the Christ, when the Messiah comes, kings and commoners alike will rage and plot against him. Why? Because, like me, they don't want to be ruled. They, they want to be left alone. See, Matthew looks at Herod's rage of the coming of the king who could topple his throne and say, see, it's him. This is the one. He's the Christ, and the nations are raging against him. This is the baby that the wise men came to worship. Clue number one, he's the king that king's dignitaries from other nations will come and worship, a fulfillment of Psalm 72. Clue number two, he's the king of all creation that the heavenly bodies will literally uh, be attracted to, a fulfillment of Psalm 19. And then he's the king who kings and peoples will rage against in their sin, a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Who is he? He is the anointed one. He's the king of all kings, the one name given under heaven, given to men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. So how do we in Adelaide in 2018, how do we respond to this king and his coming? There are three main responses to Jesus in this passage. The first one we have seen modeled by Herod, this furious rage. Most of you, most of us, we're sitting in a church gathering. I can assume that your first response to Jesus isn't rage. Maybe not. But if you go back to the beginning of the passage, when the wise men first show up in Herod's court looking for the king of the Jews, notice what it says in verse 3. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem is complicit in the way that Herod responds in rage. He's an extreme example, but he represents the way that we all respond to Jesus in our sin. Isaiah 53 says this. He, this is talking about Jesus, was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. As a human in my flesh, I've said this already. I, I don't love the idea of God with me sometimes. So I run away and can rage against this king who dares to come and throw his authority around in my life. You know the Great Commission? Maybe some of you know this. Go and, or as you're going, make disciples of all nations. We're, we're okay with that idea until we start really digging into what it means to be a disciple. Baptize, okay, I like water, no problem. Teach them to obey 
everything I command. Oh, Jesus, everything. Deny myself. Give up control over my life. That's too much, Jesus. I like my throne. I like my friends. I like my schedule. I like my house. I like my sex life. I like my career. I like my ambitions, my reputation, my sleep ends. You know, I'm not okay with this everything bit. But let's say you are okay with the claims of King Jesus on your life. You say, I'm not going to fly off in a rage when Jesus shows up. I, I love Jesus. So my question for you is, what is it that keeps you from responding to Jesus the way that the wise men in chapter 2 responded to Jesus? Again, in verse 10, in the CSB here it says, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Now, the literal way that reads in the Greek, and if you have the ESV or the King James, you'll, you'll see this. The literal way it reads is, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, or they rejoiced greatly with great joy. It's very redundant. It's, it's repetitive. It's emphatic. The, um, one of the Greek uh, words there that's translated great or exceeding is actually where we get the English prefix mega. So you might think of this joy that they had was mega joy. It's the kind of joy that risks everything for the sake of the object of that joy. And here we see these men risking their lives right after this happens. Verse 10, they've got mega joy, and, and then they're warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod. Okay? For them to defy the king, they were putting their lives on the line not doing what Herod told them to do. They, they could have been arrested and, and sentenced. But you know what? They don't care because they have just come face to face with the author of life himself, the king of all nations, the king of creation, the king above all kings. That's who they were worshiping. And it's that kind of joy that just propels them and compels them to do everything, to risk everything for the sake of that king. So we've got Herod in his mega rage and the wise men in their mega joy. But what about everybody else? And you might be thinking, well, there's nobody else in the story. That's, that's it. That's all the characters. But remember back in verse 3 when it says that not only Herod was disturbed by the coming of the king of the Jews, but all of Jerusalem, you know, the common people. And then in verse 4, it says Herod calls this meeting of all the religious experts, all the elites, and says, guys, come on, uh, you know, where is it that this king was going to be born according to the Bible? And they all don't even, they don't even have to open the Bible. And they're like, Bethlehem, I know that one, you know, because I've been to quiz night and I know my Bible stuff. Like, it's, it, it's there. It's Micah chapter 5, which Matthew helpfully quotes for us in case we're not familiar with Micah. He's got it there in bold print in mine. You know, and you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah. That was the prophecy. They knew that Messiah was coming and going to be born in Bethlehem. So you might think, man, here these guys come from nowhere, these, these wise men, and announce that the king of the Jews has been born in Bethlehem. And they, 
you think there's going to be this massive search party of people that go to Bethlehem to check it out. Is this true? Could it be that the Messiah, the promised rescuer, is here? Who goes to Bethlehem to look? It's the wise men, the ones who have already been on the road, the foreigners, the ones who've, as far as we know, don't have the Bible to refer to. They had a star. What about all the religious people? All the people in Jerusalem, they don't go. They just stay at home. They are indifferent to Jesus. They know it could be true. They don't care. They think, why? I can't, I, and I still can't quite get my head around it. You know, maybe it's like I sort of picture them as, the, you know, walking around Jerusalem with those big noise-canceling headphones on, you know? Like, I've got my schedule. I've got my career. I've got my family. I've got my health. I'm quite all right, thank you. I, I, I'm not really interested in, in, in living in some sort of, you know, epic time in history when the world is going to change. That's scary. I, I'm just going to go about my business. Leave me alone. And, and sadly, I, I actually recognize myself in, in, in these citizens of Jerusalem because I have the Bible it actually doesn't cost me anything to worship and seek Jesus, especially not this time of year. I mean, I get paid to talk about Jesus, right? It doesn't cost me anything at all. And yet, I can find my own heart very cold and indifferent to Jesus. And what do I miss out on in all of this? Is it not mega joy? Isn't that what we miss out on when we get so distracted and so unable to seek Jesus and reflect and think on who he is and that he came and that he's coming again? And I'm like, man, I, I guess I'd just rather be bored than have mega joy. And I wonder about you. Um, there's a guy by the name of Isaac Watts. He lived a, a couple hundred years ago, and he wrote songs. One of the songs he wrote is a song that we often sing this time of year. It's a song called Joy to the World. And um, the reason why he uh, wrote it is that, um, well, he was a little concerned with the state of the church in his day. And... Um, he, he was, uh, lived in a, in a time in which church people, you may not believe this, uh, didn't like new music. Um, but this is why Isaac Watts wrote new music. He wasn't trying to get a record deal. Um, he, he, was, he had been a Christian for a while, and he was, he was used to coming into worship gatherings like this. And here's what he had to say about the typical worship gathering in his day. He said, to see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips. See, they used to just sing the psalms. Um, and he's saying they're singing the psalms and they look really dull and indifferent. He says, it might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. In other words, He's looking around at everybody during the worship time, and he's like, are these people even Christians? Do they know what they're singing about? 
I don't, I don't get it. Now, that sounds harsh, but it's what he said. And he had decided that he would write a song to try to capture this mega joy that he encountered in the Bible and in his own experience of knowing and following Jesus. And so we have the song, Joy to the World. Now, I mentioned before that um, this section of Matthew 2 ends on a very seemingly joyless note. This tragedy of mothers who are refusing to be comforted because their babies have just been violently and unjustly taken from them and killed. And we have to ask, where does, a, where does a mother like this find joy that lasts? Whose life has just been ripped apart. And see, this is where a lot of our understanding of the gospel and, and the coming of Jesus falls short. The gospel is not God loves you and believes in you and wants you to have a good life. But unfortunately, that's the way some of us have received the gospel, and that's what we put our hope in. Because that's good news. If nothing bad ever happens to you, if your life just goes from strength to strength, and I guess that's good news, that Jesus loves you and wants to be your best friend, and, you know, he's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed teddy bear who likes to pat lambs and is, you know, so desperate to find a little corner of your heart to come and set up a cot in, But that's not the Jesus that the wise men came to worship. That's not who they crossed deserts and risked their lives to know and to see with their own eyes. And that Jesus, this is maybe one of the biggest problems with that Jesus, is that he has nothing to say to these moms. Nothing. He's no match for Herod, he's no match for Satan, the prince of darkness. But see, what if the king of the Jews, who these wise men came to worship, what if he's more than just a good king? What if he's more than a a nice king who, who likes babies and won't hurt them? What if he's a king who has a plan to ensure that one day that no evil king will ever carry out this kind of wicked violence again? What if he came not just to stop the killing, but death itself? You might be thinking, how can a king do that? How can he take away the power and the sting of death? But what if the prophet Isaiah was right when he said that the punishment of death that I deserve because of my sin would be placed on him? You see, joy to the world, when it was written, it wasn't about Christmas at all. It wasn't about Bethlehem and the manger. It wasn't about the first time Jesus was born. You see, because this mega joy that the wise men experienced then is nothing compared to the joy that we, his people, will experience on the day that he comes again and makes everything sad untrue and wipes every tear from every eye when death and sin and evil are crushed and gone forever. Never again will the world be ravaged by an evil king. Never again will the world be ravaged by war and abuse. 
Never again will I be or you be lured away to worship something less than Jesus. But now, while we wait for him to come back, we who belong to him, let us seek the joy that lasts. Let's press on to know him. Whether at this time of year or any, and let's not give up until we share in his joy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for exceeding joy. Help us to know the joy that comes from finding you, Jesus, the King of nations, the King of creation, the King of kings. Help us to long for the day when our joy is unmixed with sorrow, for the day when the curse of death is totally done away with and the earth is filled only with your glory. Help us to taste and see a glimpse of that this Christmas, especially in moments of grief. Help us hold on to Jesus even then. Help us now to bear each other's burdens and fight for joy together. Until you come again. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.